We are in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. And we will, in essence, look at verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, just to give you a sense of the context. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Last Sunday, we considered the value and importance of God giving us a disposition or mindset of power, love, and discipline, power to remain faithful and unshakable in the face of opposition, love that deals appropriately with the most difficult or cantankerous person, and discipline that reveals itself through careful thinking or sound judgment so that we use power and love according to godliness. And today we're going to consider the destructive power of shame, the price of boldness, and the power from God that enables us to suffer for righteousness' sake. So let's pray. Father, these truths revealed here in verse 8 are certainly pertinent to the time we live in so I'm asking you to speak to us certainly for your sake but for ours as well give us insight as to how we ought to think how we ought to trust how we ought to act I do pray this in Christ's name Amen Verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So I want to do a paraphrase of that, and uh, this is my paraphrase. Therefore, do not let shame silence you in those situations where you could openly stand with God and declare truths from God's word about how we are to live. Don't let shame stop you from acknowledging you are a co-worker with me, that is with Paul, in evangelizing unbelievers and teaching believers how to live godly lives, even though I am in prison for these things. And as you 
Recall, we've already talked about Paul writing 2 Timothy from prison. Rather, join with me in paying the price of serving God and speaking the truth of God to whomever will listen. For God will empower you to deal with whatever suffering you are forced to endure for his sake. There are three things here in verse 8 that we ought to consider because they affect how, when, and where we stand with and for God. First, there is the probability of being shamed for serving God and for speaking the truth of God to whomever will listen. Second, you will pay a price for openly talking about, first, believing in God, and second, the wisdom of living according to God's word. And third, it is the empowerment of God that enables you to endure the cost of publicly standing with and for God. So we'll start with the probability of being shamed for serving God and speaking the truth of God to whomever will listen. Shame has a good side and a bad side, a productive side and a destructive side. Today we're only going to look at the destructive or bad side. The bad or destructive side of shame is when it deters us from doing what we ought to do. That is, when it gets in the way of doing what is right or loving or godly. As Christians, when shame deters us from serving God as we ought, or from loving others by speaking truth to them, or from standing in solidarity with believers who are being mistreated for their faith in God, that's when we have allowed shame to become bad or destructive. And this destructive side of shame not only negatively affects us, but it also affects those around us. For example... When shame stops us from giving help to those who need it or deters us from speaking truth to those who need to hear it, we are, in essence, harming them. And not only in the moment, but potentially, and not always, but potentially for eternity. When, out of shame, we hide our identity as a Christian, when we do that, we allow the darkness to grow darker and the light to grow dimmer. When shame keeps us from standing with and supporting fellow Christians who are being mistreated for their faith in God, we are weakening the testimony of the church and abandoning our fellow believers in their time of need. In verse 15 of the same chapter, Paul talks about this happening to him during his imprisonment in Rome. For he says in verse 15, all who were in Asia turned away from me. They left him. They didn't want to be identified with him. And as you recall from the Gospels, the disciples did this with Jesus. When he was taken in the garden, they fled. Finally, this kind of shame damages our relationship with God as it did with Peter. And if we don't repent and change our ways, as Peter did, it 
can damage our relationship with God for eternity. And maybe it's an assumption, maybe it's the truth. I personally don't know which. But certainly Judas, who felt shame over what he did, it damaged his ending at least, and maybe his eternal life as well. Jesus talked about this in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, where he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and surely we're in a world like that, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Paul restated Jesus' words, in my opinion at least, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the second half, where he says, If we deny him, if we deny God, if we deny Christ, he also will deny us. And that kind of denial is the sign of a seriously damaged relationship between God and us. We live in a society that in some ways despises shame. And yet in other ways uses it to coerce its non-compliant members, including Christians, into compliance. I believe we see this happening all around us in how unbelievers respond to the Christian's view of God in light of their views of God and how they respond to biblical morality in light of their morality. So what are Christians to do? Paul's answer in verse 8 is rather simple. Don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, he says. That's the solution. However, for most of us, that simple answer, though easy to say, is not so simple to apply. Why? Well, it can be costly to stand with God and for God in a world that increasingly despises God and treats godly ethics and morality as being restrictive, narrow, unduly judgmental, and, in their perspective, even unjust. It is in times like these, which we at least are at the front end of those times, if not pretty well in them, it's in times like these that shame can become a motivating reason to hide our light or silence our mouth or distance ourselves from believers who are more open and bold about standing with or for God than we believe it is safe to be. And indeed it can become unsafe. Now, without question, there is a cost to acknowledging you believe in God and talking about the wisdom of living according to God's word. For Paul, the cost included 39 lashes with a whip five times. It included being beaten with rods three times. And I don't know which would be worse. I mean, when I think about my body absorbing the whip or the rods, I suspect I would pick the whip, but I don't know. It could be worse than the rods. It included being stoned once, spending time in jail, being falsely accused and maligned as someone who is in ministry for personal fame and fortune, 
It included being persecuted by Jews even when he was in predominantly Gentile areas of the world and eventually being put to death. And I think that we could agree those are some pretty serious costs. We see the Old Testament accounts of God's prophets. And when we read about them, we read stories about the prophets being mistreated and even murdered. We have the story of Daniel being fed to the lions simply for praying and his three friends being thrown into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to the idol. And though Daniel and his friends lived, others didn't. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38, provides a gruesome account of the price people paid for standing with and for the Lord. Currently, Christians are being brutally killed in Nigeria. Heads bashed in, throats slit, heads cut off, burned alive. This is happening today. This isn't something that's past. This is ongoing right now. And Christians are being imprisoned or forced into re-education camps in China. And that's just two countries that are currently persecuting Christians. In some Middle Eastern countries, it is illegal. It is illegal to leave Islam and become a Christian, to convert. It isn't just against the family ethics or the religious practices. It is by law illegal in the country. And some of the consequences include being put to death. And in many Muslim communities, it's an acceptable practice for a father or an uncle to put to death a family member who converts from Islam to Christianity. I met with a man for a number of months in helping this individual work through some conflict that he was in with another, uh, actually, Muslim convert. They were both converts. Uh, He himself, his grandfather, he had converted to Christianity, and uh, they were in Lebanon. His grandfather took him out to a field with a uh, rifle in his hand and said that if the boy would leave, that's this man now, if he would leave and never come back, that he would not kill. And uh, Hiram did leave, and he's never been back. It's true that this kind of brutal treatment of Christians is only happening in a few areas of the world. And yet, milder forms of persecution seem to be on the increase almost everywhere. For example, in the Western world, it is now an acceptable practice to publicly ridicule and shame Christians for calling, uh, for being Christians and calling them self-righteous and judgmental and intolerant. Some are being ostracized by family members, by friends, by co-workers and people in their community. And some have been forced out of their jobs because they won't support the world's changing moral code. The point being, simple point, 
There is a cost involved in standing with and for God. And being shamed, verse 8, is one of those costs. According to the Luxem Bible Dictionary, shame is a mix of dire feelings that result from public exposure, embarrassment, disgrace, social rejection, ridicule, and dishonor. All things that can negatively affect our sense of well-being, our reputation, our social standing, and our financial stability. And it is these kinds of costs that tempt us Christians to care more about self-preservation than about God's honor or the good of our community or the spiritual well-being of those who are nearest and dearest. Many, many years ago, Jesus warned us that we might experience these kind of times. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, records Jesus as saying, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world... I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you remember the word that I said to you a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will keep yours also the point Jesus is making is that we should not expect to be treated better than he was treated The reality is, if Jesus could not stand with and for God without being mistreated, neither can we. And I realize that we have lived in a country, in a culture that has for many years protected Christian and freedom of religion. But those days may not last as long as we might hope. Now, I don't think Jesus was making these points that we just read in those two portions of scriptures to comfort us. I don't think that was his purpose. There's not a lot of comfort that you can give for suffering for righteousness sake. I believe Jesus spoke these words in order to urge us to be realistic about the fact that it can be costly to stand with and for God. That's a reality that we should be realistic about. And for me, that brings us back to our question. What are we Christians to do? Paul answers this question in verse 8, where in essence he says that the empowerment of God will enable us to endure the cost of publicly standing with and for God. The scripture states it, 
In a different way, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. According to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, we ought to be asking God to strengthen us with his power in our inward being so we can maintain a proper relationship with Christ so that we can love others as we ought and so that we can be confident that we are safe in his love regardless of the circumstances. Circumstances can color our perspective. We need God's empowerment to maintain a right perspective. According to Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we can live lives worthy of our Lord, faithfully pleasing him in all respects and patiently bearing fruit in every good work. Why? Because he strengthens us with power by his glorious might for these very things. We can do it. You know, the Israelites, first generation that came out of Egypt, got up to the promised land and they sent 12 spies into the land and those spies came back and 10 of them were convinced that they could not do what God said they could do. They were convinced that if they went into that land, the men would be slaughtered, the women and children would be enslaved, and all would be lost. They couldn't see the power of God at work. And when the next generation went in, they could not see the power of God at work until after the victory was won. Every time they went into battle, there was no cloud or pillar of fire. There was no extra special, magical appearance of God. They went into battle simply by faith, believing that God would empower them, and that empowerment would gain them the victory, and the victory was secured. We can't see the power of God, but we can see the results. He's the one who strengthens us with power by his glorious might for these very things. It's there, but we must act as those who have that power. And as you recall from our study of 2 Timothy 1.7, which happened to be just last Sunday, it is God who gives us the disposition or mindset of power, love and discipline, so that we are able to replace timidness and shame-induced silence with courage and boldness that openly and clearly stands with and for God. When I was uh, in my late teens, early 20s, I went to Michigan State for two years. And I had been at Detroit Bible College for two years. There is a way in which I wanted to be a Christian. I wanted to live a godly life. I wanted to be a testimony. I wasn't doing real well, not even at Detroit Bible College. But I thought, when I get to Michigan State, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, so to speak, and I'm really going to be godly. 
Well, because I was a new student, I had to go up for orientation, and that was like four days before school started. I got there, and um, within three days, I was going with the boys to a place I should have never gone to, and my testimony was shot from that day forward. I could have said no, but I definitely wanted to fit in. And I did fit in, but not as a believer, as one of them. I know the power of influence to hide the light, to be different. Now, when I look back, I would say, you know, I really wasn't a believer in those days. I just assumed I was, believed I was, maybe I was. But my determination to be a witness went down the drain in three days. I knew nothing about the power of God and even think about drawing on it or appealing to him in prayer or believing that I had it. I just knew I didn't want to be left out. I didn't want to be shamed as a Christian. So I became one of the crowd. For an example of someone who endured public shaming yet remained faithful to God, faithful to the message, and faithful to the work he was called to do, let's consider Jesus. And we will only consider the hours leading up to and including his crucifixion. He was spit on, hit in the face and head, stripped of his clothes. Think of that in light of shame. Ridiculed, insulted, made to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, the very streets which just a week prior brought him into Jerusalem to cheers and praise and worship. Think of that in light of shame. And finally, he was nailed to a cross between two known thieves. How did he endure such shame and remain faithful to God and God's word? Well, you may want to answer that question by saying he did it because he could. After all, he was God. And I'm not. And you're not. Well, there may be some truth to that answer. But I want to declare that Jesus was as human as you and me. His sinlessness, his faithfulness to God and boldness in standing with and for God was not because he was God, but because, first of all, he worked at drawing near to God. He would go out in the middle of the night and pray. He spent until he was 30, starting at age 12 considering the things of his father. Twelve was when he stayed back at the temple and his parents were going back home and he was about his father's business. He worked at drawing near to God. He was serious about obeying God in spite of the cost to himself. 
He entrusted himself to God, even when his propensity for self-preservation was at its strongest. And I would say one of the strongest times that we're aware he felt that was during his prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was taken. Pleading with God, if there was another way, let's take it. We get a picture of how Jesus did this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. And in this portion of scripture, Peter is urging us to have this same mindset, this same disposition, to take on the same way of living. And here's what we read, starting at verse 21. For you, that includes me, we have been called for this purpose. That is to suffer for righteousness sake. We have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in spite of what it was costing him, he went on to bear our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. The point that's made here in 1 Peter, is that what Jesus did, we can do. Though shamed and mistreated, though the price may be more than we want to pay, we can, like Jesus, draw from God the strength to bolster our courage and feed our boldness in order to stand with and for God. See, the reality is we are not alone. We are not alone when standing with and for God. Nor are we left to our own strength and courage, our boldness, our strength, our courage. They come from God. They are not dependent on an assertive, take charge personality. If you're the more the passive person, you may think, well, I can't do that. But you can by the power of God. And though we cannot see the infusion of God's strength any more than Israel could when they went out to clear the land, and though we cannot see the reality of God's presence, we have both his strength and presence in fullest measure. And though we may come out of the lion's den like Daniel, or be stoned to death like Stephen. We won't be. We cannot be separated from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, both in this life and throughout eternity. Therefore, do not let shame silence you in those situations where you could openly stand with God, 
and speak the truths of God to whoever will listen. Do not let shame stop you from acknowledging you are a Christian, even though it may cost you more than you want to pay. Instead, join with those Christians who have and still are paying a price for serving God and speaking the truth of God to whomever will listen. For God will empower you to deal with whatever suffering you are forced to endure for his sake. 